0: father when he would sit me down he would say something and the funny thing is that I I always despised it like I hated it in the moment and he would always ask me what are you learning what can you learn from this and he was the first person who I learned this idea that I could learn something from everything even if during that time in my life I you know consciously was probably telling myself I didn't want to hear it and then yeah and then I had some mentors when I got into entrepreneurship, which was like a, an escape. It was like a way out at a time in my life where I hated learning at school. But they helped me to realize that my life was eventually going to be a reflection of how well I developed myself. And things were bad enough for me. I looked around and I thought, well, if, if these guys that are telling me, if they're right, maybe I should try this on. So I I had this reignited passion to just Educate myself.
1: Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach, Sayed Azadi. In every episode, I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. John Bergoff is the founder of The Exchange Approach, a unique approach to unlocking collective wisdom in any group. John previously served as the head of sales for the direct sales team at Vitamix Corporation where revenues grew by 400% in less than four years. Before COVID-19, exchange was used by companies like Facebook, BMW and Costco to facilitate powerful large-scale conversations when the stakes were highest. And since COVID-19, change agents of every type, coaches, consultants and thought leaders, including myself, are using exchange to create connection, community and accelerated learning in every imaginable environment. It is my great, great pleasure to have John Berghoff on with Sayada today. So I'm going to give you a bit of a backstory to how I found you, John. Um, So my last trip to America was for an event called High Performance Academy, where I went to with my daughter um, and that was in February 2020 in San Diego. So March comes along, pandemic hits, and you know, everyone's travel plans were completely turned upside down, life was turned upside down. So I then spent kind of like April and May thinking, what on earth am I going to do? You know, where can I channel my energy? And also how do I support my family and my friends, etc., etc. An email then lands in my inbox from Jeff Walker about his product launch formula live event. And for the first time in its history, it was online. So in my head, I'm thinking maybe I can do this, You know, maybe it's just gonna be too much because there's so much other noise that's going on. Last email comes, it says, you've got to register now or you've missed it. I registered. Mm -hmm. From there, Mm -hmm. I then went to the event run by Sage, which is called the virtual events on virtual events. And John, I can't remember which day you presented, but what I can remember is that when you kind of came in and you said a few words, and I'm sitting there with my coffee and just thinking, yeah, yeah, I heard it all before. And then you said um, something about kind of like going and find an item that describes something about you. And I thought in my head, this is a grown-up version of show and tell. Why not? (laughs) Why not? So I went and found it. We had the kind of group conversation and things which is typical of what you teach at the exchange approach. And you came back and you kind of unpacked some of that. And within five minutes of just listening to you, like, honestly, I probably couldn't have even remembered your name properly at the time. But I just thought, whatever he's teaching, I need to learn how to do that so that I can be better in myself and also serve my community and my audience and others better. But here's the really interesting thing, and I don't know if you know this or not. In 2018, I made a strategic decision that I didn't want to have any more white American male teachers and that I wanted to have more of a diversity of voices in terms of who I learn from. And so that for me was just something that was playing around in my head afterwards. And I looked to see if I could find somebody else who kind of does the stuff that you do, John, and I couldn't. And so I thought, (laughs) well, you know, sometimes that you have to go to the teacher that is best and is world class in, in the thing that you want to learn. And that's why I joined exchange and, I'm just so blessed to be within that community. And I, I view you, John John Berghoff, as my friend, my intellectual partner, um, who I, just as an aside, I love and hate all at the same time, <laughs> because you push me to places that I can't really describe. But I know that on the other side of that is just a huge amount of growth that I cannot imagine. And so for that, I thank you. And so welcome, John.
0: Saida, thank you for that. And um, that was a pleasure hearing you uh, reliving through the journey that the path that you went on to get to find me and for me to find you and uh, grateful to be here today. And uh, many of the gifts that you just expressed that you've received from me, um, I've received from you. So it's uh, the feelings are mutual in many ways. It's great to be with you.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, John. So... um, in, in the kind of introduction, I described some feeling of, of discomfort. And to me, you are an incredibly accomplished young man, if I'm allowed to call you that. I'll take it. absolutely. And, and I, So I'd love to know, like, how do you handle discomfort?
0: Mm, wow. Sometimes skillfully and often not so skillfully. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that question. You know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a father of three young children uh, who I love so deeply as, um, you know, someone who's lived my own journey and had moments of comfort and many of discomfort. It's, uh, what I, I love that question because it's actually something I've been curious about for quite a long time. Um, I experienced a lot of discomfort as a young man. Uh, not not necessarily feeling like I felt in in a pretty significant way, and then when I discovered entrepreneurship at a pretty young age, I realized that I could also impose discomfort on myself in an intentional way, so I could build the skill of navigating it to try and get to some of the rewards on the other side of it. So I'm just I just wanted to acknowledge what a big question I think that is. And for me, it's something I've cared a lot about for a long time. And so that's not even an answer to your question. You know, how do Mm -hmm. I handle discomfort? I mean, the short answer, now that I've given the long one, is um, uh, hopefully from a place of compassion for myself and then hopefully for others. And, you know, it might involve mindfulness techniques. Uh, It might involve uh, recognizing when I'm, when I'm not handling it well, and then hopefully turning things around well. And that's just the conversation inside my head, I guess. But of course, as you know, you and I met in the exchange environment where we teach facilitation techniques. And you know anybody who's facilitated any group experience has probably found that there are, it's almost a given that tension and discomfort um, will arise. In, The more experienced we are as facilitators, we actually start to hope for those moments because they're often a sign that maybe there's a breakthrough or something exciting that could emerge, a a discovery or a learning, whether it's for the group or the facilitator. So there's so many different elements to navigating discomfort in group settings and as an individual. Um, But a lot of it comes back to mindfulness practices, compassion for myself, for others, and hopefully a curiosity to learn from those moments or from others who might be contributing to that discomfort
1: mm. and and i th- and i understand you're also an ultra runner right so like as somebody i mean i used to do half marathons in my early 20s and um when i run sometimes there's just that kind of like point of well, you're at a point potentially of no return where you've got to make a decision. Am I going to suffer and carry on or am I going to stop? And I think some ways that also teaches us how to hold that moment of discomfort. What do you think? Uh,
0: certainly. Um, and you and I have never talked about this, but yeah, I do have a, uh, a history as a, an amateur. Uh, it's not something I've ever done at a highly competitive level. It, it's always been just a you know, self-discovery habit or uh, adventure that I send myself on. I've done a number of uh, 50 mile ultra trail runs. I did one uh, 100 mile trail run uh, through the Shenandoah Valley. That was the that was an uh, official race. That was the Old Dominion 100 mile race. And uh, that that day, I'll always remember, it happened to also be the hottest day of the year on record in Virginia. We started at 4 a.m. and it was already 95 degrees Fahrenheit for us and humid and uh, that was quite a journey. And I've also I've also actually uh, I put on one particular uh, experience, I guess, to call uh, for myself that was a three hundred and thirty two mile run across eight and a half days. I did stop at night to sleep and try and recover. And that was something I did on, on my own. I did have a small crew that supported me where they could. Um, but my, uh, yeah, the, my days of ultra running, people ask me if I'm training for another run. I still trail run and practice yoga. And I was out on the paddleboard a few minutes before this chat. And I love being in nature. Um, I haven't run on pavement in 21 years. And when I did, I thought, I don't want to do this again. So it's, uh, it is a journey of learning for me being out in the woods and running again and again and again. I haven't competed for a little while. I did a 50 miler a couple of years ago. Um, but nowadays the, the ultra event that I'm training for is just life <laughs> being a dad, being an entrepreneur.
1: I love how you kind of said that at the end, cause it really is sometimes life does feel like, uh, an ultra marathon that is just not going to end, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So I, I kind of heard, um, a number of really really rich things in there and, and kind of the question that I would love to ask you is what inspires you because you mentioned nature you mentioned learning and um, so yeah what what inspires you?
0: Yeah well what inspires me today is um, doing my very best to make a contribution to starting with my family and the community that I live in. I I spend a lot of time every single day coaching youth sports and which which quickly becomes around you know, being of service to these young boys and girls in our community. And, and through my work, I, I just want to be of the highest service to what my purpose is. And at this moment in time, it's it's helping um, folks just like yourself. You know, I've met 10,000 people, uh, none like you, but like you at uh, uh, in the last 13 months. Right, you you shared that story. When you were in San Diego in February. I was just thinking, oh my gosh, you just got that trip in right before the pandemic hit. You know? yeah. And uh, when that pandemic hit, w- you know, we had never done an online anything, and, and now everything is, and it's glorious. But uh, for the last year, we've our our mission has been to help coaches and teachers and leaders to discover a set of facilitation tools that they can bring to any group environment to help unlock the potential of that group and maybe at a scale or at a speed that they didn't even know was possible. And, and, and just like I believe about your work that you're doing right now around helping us all to understand what belonging and understanding really mean. And um, for the same reason, I think the world really needs that work. I think the world really needs... Um, a new approach to how we think about, how we design, and then ultimately facilitate when groups come together. There's so much potential. A group of people is like a symphony of strengths. And yet, unknowingly, I think what we've seen is that the way we still come together in group environments where even though people might feel good about it, it's still guided by ways of thinking and leading that, in our opinion, were born 100 years ago, necessary then, but dramatically outdated today. So you asked me what motivates me. It's, it's helping leaders, coaches, teachers to discover that there is this very interesting niche skill set of facilitation that for those who, who find their way to our little world, it might be the unlocking mechanism that they've been looking for. Um, and I, I, I also, as soon as you ask that question, say, it's interesting because I hold that question that you just asked open. What motivates me? And I, many of the teachings and teachers that I've been inspired by, I've been inspired to hold open that question of what motivates me, what's driving me, what's important to me, because <laughs> I've realized that I have the freedom to allow my answer to change over time. You know, I think back to 20 years ago, it's a very different answer. It was even a different answer a few years ago. So I'm uh, I'm I'm very thoughtful around who are my influences, who are my teachers, what are the teachings, because I've come to realize that what motivates me will often be unconsciously inspired by who I who and what ideas I put myself in proximity to so even actually just being friends with you and learning from you has evolved what motivates me right i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about those things today
1: mm-hmm. yeah and and i love how you framed that in the you know just being open and and i would also argue vulnerable to constantly changing who you learn from and being open to new experiences. And um, I was reading something this morning for, for my thesis um, about how we learn. and it described three different layers of learning. And one is that you literally you just take in the information and it goes in one ear and comes out the other. I'm ashamed mm-hmm. to say I can't remember the second one, but I will put it in the show notes. And the third one is about approaching learning with curiosity and just mm. kind of literally being open to reflecting, to reading the words, to pondering on it and to discussing it with other people. And when I read that, I thought, gosh, I had no idea that I was that deeper learner and it just made me smile. Mm. And I think that's something that you really kind of cultivate for others, but also something that you crave as an individual, right?
0: I do. I do. It, it, it came from my father. Uh, when I was a kid, my ways of behaving didn't always line up with how our educational system wanted me to behave. <laughs> Isn't that a sophisticated way of saying I was a brat and I got in a lot of trouble? Um, I, uh, when I was a kid, I uh, found myself in trouble quite a bit. And my, my father, when he would sit me down, he would say something, and the funny thing is that I I always despised it, like I hated it in the moment. And he would always ask me, w- "What are you learning? What can you learn from this?" And he was the first person who I learned this idea that I could learn something from everything, even if during that time in my life I, you know, consciously was probably telling myself I didn't want to hear it. And then, yeah, and then. I had some mentors when I got into entrepreneurship, which was like a, an escape. It was like a way out at a time in my life where I hated learning at school. But they helped me to realize that my life was eventually going to be a reflection of how well I developed myself. And things were bad enough for me. I looked around and I thought, well, if if these guys that are telling me, if they're right, maybe I should try this on. So I I had this reignited passion to just educate myself and uh, that's been a that's been a faucet that was opened 22 years ago before that by my father but as a young entrepreneur that still to this day it's it's a it's an unending question what could I be learning in this moment what else is going on right now so um.
1: Mm. and I think um one I think you're a great example of of a human being that doesn't necessarily follow the formalities of the structure of education that we are taught um, should be followed, for example. And I I think that's really important because, for example, my husband left school when he was 16 and joined the army. And so he didn't have any formal qualifications until um, after we got married and a friend of his was doing a master's. And I said, well, why don't you just apply and see what happens? And he's like, well, I don't have GCSEs, I don't have A-levels, what should I do? And I said, don't worry, all you have to do is take your experience and extrapolate it and Mm -hmm. I'll help you with that. And he got, he, it's so funny because I I feel compelled to share this with you, but when he was graduating from his Mm -hmm. master's with distinction, one of the tutors said to him, gosh, if I'd known you didn't have a degree, I wouldn't have let you on the course. And what a way to kind of like stick your fingers up at the system and basically say, well, I can still do it. And so I think for me, there is something about the way that we learn in schools and the structure of education. And look, I'm doing a doctorate at the moment, and there's still things within the system that really press my buttons. But for me personally, right now, I'm willing to play the game because I have a much bigger game in the things that I want to do with the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. And I think it's kind of like part of the path that gets me there. But that does not mean in any way, shape or form that the education system is a good one.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you raise that. By the way, as we're speaking this uh this beautifully wild rainstorm just came into the center of our town here. So I uh I'm both embracing this this uh mother nature showering our our offices and noting that it could cut my internet out if it does. I'll I'm here. <laughs>
1: if it does, we'll come back, don't worry.
0: Yeah, it's all great. Yeah, you know, it's what strikes me about what you just shared in that story about your husband, I didn't know that, it's, it's cool to hear, is, um, you know, for me, learning how to learn and being intentional about learning and um, having a thoughtfulness around, you know, the, I have a limited capacity. I was, fortunately, someone introduced me to the concept of speed reading at a young age, but that's one thing is the, you know, how quickly I can learn. But another thing is what do I still choose to put myself in proximity to? And uh, from a very young age, I I was encouraged and taught to be thoughtful um, about what I'm going to consume and not just follow the rabbit trails that everybody else suggests. So I, you know, I'm very, very rarely reading the popular uh, recommendations Mm -hmm. um, versus following my own trail. And when you talked about educational institutions you know, I'm an interesting product of education in this very polarizing way. Like I barely made it out of high school. I, I was not accepted to any um, undergraduate college, university that I applied to. And I went on to, you know, fortunately have some great mentors and great professional experiences. And, you know, when I was 26, 27, I was an executive overseeing a nearly two hundred million dollar organization, the sales organization for the Vitamix company, and and that was incredible. And because of that experience, I was given the opportunity to apply, and then I was accepted at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. And I I put myself through that learning journey because I just wanted to learn from David Cooper Rider and Ron Fry and Chris Laszlo and and others, uh, Richard Boyatzis, who were pioneering thought leaders in how do you lead change at scale and emotional intelligence. And, and while I was at CASE, I had this incredible experience. You know, David Kolb, who's one of the original uh, pioneers in experiential learning, um, his origins, he has a, a rich history with CASE Western Reserve University. So I, I'm sitting there being taught by some of the greatest experiential teachers that I could possibly find and that learning was worth uh, infinitely more than the time and money I spent, but a totally different experience than my younger years. And yet, say it at the same time, I looked around the classroom that I was in. At the time, the cohort was, I don't know, maybe 20 of us going through this executive MBA program on how to lead change at scale. And I could still see that not everybody was having an equally valuable experience, Some were figuring out, how do I apply what I'm learning? How do I translate what sometimes could feel academic into a practical setting? Or as one of my friends, Steve Havel taught me, said, how do you take the sky to the streets? (laughs) Mm. And, And I was fortunate that I was able to practically apply in real time, but not everyone was. So everyone has to figure out how to make that learning valuable, whatever journey they're on, I guess.
1: And that's, that's exactly why one of my recommendations, I mean, I've got a stupid amount of degrees and stuff, but one of my recommendations always is you do your degree and then milk it for three years. That's how I describe it. Oh, (laughs) that's great. Get the maximum out of that thing before you try and do something else. Because for people who go straight from degree to master's to PhD, I actually don't know if you've spent enough time just kind of like unpacking all of the learning. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Integrating. Yeah absolutely yeah totally
1: so let's move on and let me ask you what is a belief that you've had that's quite a strong belief for a long time but it's changed recently
0: Mm, wow that's a wonderful question may i may i have a moment to reflect on that question
1: <laughs> absolutely it's not an, it's not an, an easy question to answer so yeah
0: it's i that's one i that's i call that one i want to take out into the woods that's one i want to take out into the woods well let me think about this i think you know when i th- when i think about you know the first the first thing that comes to mind i it's actually hard for me to, to think about that question through the lens of, you know, a belief that I held that has changed or a new belief as much as what, what arises for me is a new paradigm. And maybe I didn't believe in something the way I do now, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. versus a change in belief. Um, you know, what one, well, let's start with, you know, something that's been transformational that you've contributed to. And it's the belief that, and it's not that I, I I was against what I'm about to say. It's that I didn't realize how important it was for me to take a stand for something. And this has to do with being a white male who is given the privilege, and I'm not discrediting the work I've done to put our company in the position it's in. Uh, I. I believe I and our team and our company and and you and all of our members deserve everything that we've created for ourselves and each other. And I also have come to believe deeply that as a white male, I have a responsibility to not just educate myself, but in an unending way to do everything I can to become more and more self-aware that a Muslim woman like yourself, and you're just a representative of many different groups who just because of something that you're born into which not isn't inherently good bad a problem a, um, a positive but as a white male there's so many things that I don't ever have to deal with that so many who I teach and lead do and so it's the belief for me that as you know a facilitator um, I've got to make sure that even when I intellectually and I'm embodying everything that I know about how to facilitate in ways that create authentic connection, transformational moments of learning, um, a spirit of safety, and even a spirit of belonging. It's the realization, and I didn't get this a year ago, it's the realization that I can be doing everything I just said at a world-class level, and we're honored that many people think we are at that level and teaching others how to do it. And at the same time, there can be more than one individual in that audience who I'm simultaneously undermining their feeling of safety. And i that's an example of a, a paradigm, an awareness, a belief. I think it's so important for everybody who has the privilege to lead, teach, and convene, regardless of of their skin color, of who they are, where they come from to realize that we don't always know what's going on for others and that's a that's important and to be careful that when 95 out of 100 people tell you that was the greatest thing in the world that what's happening for those five people who didn't give you any feedback <laughs> um, so that's that's just a an interesting distinction that comes up for me saida in responding to that question there's probably others as well but I'll stop at that Mm,
1: I I love that John because I think what you're describing actually is something that links to my introduction you know in that um, when we put ourselves in spaces of of challenge and of discomfort that's where growth comes and it's it's very easy because of some of the learning spaces that I'm in just to kind of go in not disrupt. I know I can be quite disruptive and sometimes that is a triggering thing for, for others, for my teacher. I, I Forgive me, John, I've disrupted you several times.
0: <laughs> I, I, those are moments that at this time I cherish.
1: <laughs> but and, and I'm so pleased that you said that because you never know in the moment, right? You're just thinking, is this something that's useful or is it a um, kind of real distraction and, and a derailment even Because there's something different. Distraction is good and helpful. Derailment can actually take something and just kind of like put it off the course. But holding that space and allowing that to come. And even when you said about um, there'll always be people who just feel that they that they can't belong And so for me, in the work that I'm trying to do, it's very much about how do you hold the space for the people who feel that they're able to belong and, you know, do the work, but also for the people who don't want to and acknowledge that they are welcome, make them welcome, hear all of their voices, but also know that not everyone wants to be in that space. And so if you don't want to be there, then then that's fine. Because I suppose what what I'm coming to really is that, no one can impose anything upon somebody else. You can show them that it's there, you know. You it's like you know you can offer them the medicine if they don't want to take it; they don't take it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that. You know, you're. <laughs> uh, when I think about some of the moments that you have um, created or invited inside of our own trainings at Exchange and you raise this idea of is this useful or is it a derailment? And as a facilitator, I mean, I have no issues admitting to you all of the conversations that are happening in my head when you say to have raised, you know, I'm trying to unpack, here's the four the four pillars of creating community. When the first one is safety. And I still need to talk about story, sharing value and stewardship. And I've got an hour and you say something, two minutes into my, my spiel on safety and we never get to the other three. And I'm sitting there thinking exactly what you're thinking, is, which is, is this useful or is this a de- derailment? And this is where, as a facilitator, the ability to do multiple things at one time um, is a really important skill. And it's only possible, maybe some would say with experience, I don't know, but really with um. The, the skillfulness, we really start to talk about a, a presence to where we can both sense what's happening in the room. And if anybody's questioning whether or not you can sense what's happening in a Zoom room,
1: <laughs> I would
0: make an argument. It is infinitely easier at times than sensing what's happening when you're in a physical room. And I, could, and I could unpack that in an instant if we need to, but it's also navigating the conversation inside of our own minds in real time. I mean, you've raised questions about safety. We've had 100 people at a two-day training, and these are members of our community who've invested a lot to learn from myself or our faculty or or each other. And you're right. It gets raised, and now as the facilitator, we've got to ask, are we serving our highest purpose here? Which, by the way, is one of the most important questions to ask. You know, one of our shared mentors, a mentor of mine for a long time, who you met through our community, Mo McKenna. Mm. One of her mentors, Jane Magruder Watkins, taught all of us how important it is to plan tight and hang loose. And I mean, this is even a principle in nature. Right? It's called bounded instability. Actually, Dana Zohar, who wrote Spiritual Capital, and we study living systems. This is, a, you know, There's a science behind these moments that look like an art. And at the end of the day, it can be both. Mm-hmm. This can be both a derailment, depending on how you define derailment, but it can also be in service of a higher purpose than the agenda we had in that moment. So Mm -hmm. that's the conversation I was having is this could be either. And while I cannot control everything that Saida or these other hundred people are going to say right now, while I'm navigating a very sensitive conversation, I can influence it. I'm not, I'm not necessarily can control it, but I can influence. And by influence, what I mean is how deeply can I listen? How deeply can I observe? That's the thing on Zoom. I can see a hundred faces at one time. I can see micro reactions all at once. You couldn't do that in a physical room. Mm. And so you can see when people are leaning in. You can see when they are of the perspective, just through their body language, that this is an important conversation. And so, you know, what's what really needs to be up next is not always what's on the agenda. Mm. So those are the things that go on in my mind during those moments. And I believe what I can influence is to invite myself and then hopefully everybody else to get present to what's emerging so that maybe we can actually participate in the future that is seeking to emerge. Mm. So when you've raised in front of people where that was not part of my plan, and at moments I thought, shit, this is not useful. I got all this stuff to teach. But if I can pause, if I can listen, not just to you, but to people's energetic responses in real time, then maybe I can notice there is a future that wants to emerge that I wasn't aware of before that moment. So Mm. those are the things that go on in my mind in those moments.
1: (laughs) I love that. And the bit at the end that you said about just pausing, because actually sometimes a pause is just a second. But in that second, you have enough space to be able to to make a decision just to work out how are you going to navigate it. But without that pause, I know for me, you can go into a reactive response. So the, the pause, I think, is is really quite significant. And if anyone's interested to listen to the unpacking of one of these kind of disruptive conversations, I've done a podcast with Peter Katz, and mm, we kind of beautiful. discuss uh, that in the first 20 minutes or so. So, that, that, so that's there. Uh, the other kind of um, thing that I just wanted to offer as well is that there is a sense of responsibility, so I I, I realize that sometimes I can be, um, I can have these questions that come up, but the just the time isn't right, and so so there is a navigation that one has to do in terms of how do you place that question into the conversation, um, without hijacking the agenda if that makes sense and and thinking yeah. Is it of service so there's a dual responsibility in some ways both for uh, the teacher the trainer but also for the student in terms of respecting the space that they've gone in
0: well it, it's funny you say this last week um you and i have a mutual peer who's a member of the exchange community jennifer jennifer uh, McDowell. mcdowell yep jennifer mcdowell and huh, Boy, do I love Jennifer. I mean, talk about someone who, who listens so deeply to others. Uh, and she's modeled in our community for months what it means to, to give and receive uh, in extraordinary ways. And um, so this is wild that you're bringing what you just said, because I don't know if you know this Sada, but uh, last week, I know you are aware, you know, we have, we just ran a three-day training every three or four months Uh, one of our two flagship experiences that we lead that that the public can enroll in one of them is on our facilitation training Got one of those coming up next month when i don't know when this comes out but there's probably a facilitation training uh at some point in the future but then we've recently started adding a leadership training on awakening conscious leadership And we just, last week, we had 130 people go through this training for three days. And if you were to ask me in one sentence, what's the training all about? It's about navigating the pause. And here's what's interesting is in the middle of the training on the second day, we're in the middle of a core teaching about the intersection of neuroscience and mindfulness and the practices of going from a place of reactivity to creativity. It's like the heart of the experience. And Jennifer McDowell puts a note in the Zoom chat box and one of the things I want to acknowledge is, and she is is she put a note in the Zoom chat box that, um, and I want to respect the confidentiality of that experience in that moment, but I think she'd be fine with me sharing the context. And it was a note asking us, the facilitators, if there was a way to bring into the conversation this reality that we're ta- we're there talking about safety from a biological standpoint. And she said, "Hey, can we acknowledge?" that there are people who, because of um, forces like systemic racism or institutional oppression, and I might not be using the exact words that she used, that there are some people who feel a lot less safe than others just because of these things that are outside of their control. Now she put it in the Zoom chat. And what I thought was beautiful about what she did is she put that question out there and there was a, a back channel conversation amongst our 28 person leadership team where they started saying, hey, we." We need to notice that question. And what I want to acknowledge about what Jennifer did is I saw that. And because Dr. Daniel Friedland, who this conscious leadership training, it's his research that this is based around. He's there with me leading this training along with the team. Because I know him and his heart and who he is, I knew that I could interrupt him in the middle of the most important moment of that day and say, Danny, Jennifer just put a question in the chat. Would you be okay if I... Uh, if we honored this question. Now, he hadn't seen it, but because he is who he is, Mm. he said, whatever it is, please, John. So I then invited Jennifer. I said, Jennifer, if you'd like to, but please don't feel obligated, if you'd like to put your voice to your question, I would love to create that space. Because sometimes people want to put it in writing, but maybe they don't want to put their voice to it in front of 130 people that they might not know everybody, right? And she did raise her digital hand. And she did something that was a beautiful example, Sayida, of how to honor the both and, of how to raise something, but also respect that she doesn't necessarily know everything we got planned. And she said, she said, thank you for allowing me. And she said, I also want to respect. And it was something along the lines of, I want to respect that I know there's other things to do. So um, I completely understand if we shouldn't answer this question right now, but here's the question. And -hmm. it gave us an opportunity to honor it, for it to be heard, to address it briefly, but then to hold that question open moving forward. And then our team did something very symbolic. And this was unbeknownst to me. At the end of each day of our trainings, we send out an end-of-day recap to the participants where we relive the journey of the day. Well, I no longer am involved in creating those recaps. I read them just like every other student. And I like just being surprised and seeing how our team approaches it. And as I'm reading the recap, I see that our team put a screenshot of the moment that Jennifer came forward, as well as a direct quote of the question she put in the chat. And I thought to myself, I'm so grateful that our team didn't feel they needed to ask me. Because that's a big deal once you put that in writing and then publish it in these recaps. It's there forever. I was so grateful that our team felt that the right thing to do was to crystallize that moment by putting it in writing. Because, you know, it's in a Zoom meeting, that fades away. But you put it in those recaps, it's there forever. And it it was a moment that it touched my heart, Saida, because I didn't have to influence it. I don't even know who on our team does the recaps anymore. I know it's a team effort. But it just said just so much to me that we put that back in writing and because of everything that meant. So I thank you for letting me share that story, because I would say a year ago, I don't know if I, I don't know if our team would have had the presence, would have had the perspective um, to navigate that situation. And it's in part, thanks, not just to me or Danny or our team, but Jennifer and how she brought that forward. And I think for so many of us who want to figure out how to courageously say what needs to be said when it needs to be said, but we don't always know how, we need models like her and like you who do it in a thoughtful, respectful way.
1: Mm, that's, that's beautiful. It really is. And actually, I'm going to be um, speaking with Jennifer for a podcast episode sometime soon. So I hope that this is going to come up um, in that. Because actually, asking difficult questions is not easy. Um, and we, we could speak about that. Um, but what I would also like to speak about is, is trust, because what you have described mm. is you have a team around you that you trust, and certainly one of the the, the best thing that I got from uh, a couple of facilitations that I have led, where I realised the opportunity was far bigger than me, and I needed a team to support that event was having people that i could trust so usually when we do facilitations we we use zoom and this one was on microsoft teams and it was the first time we'd use teams and we get to the event everything you know i can't even see the chat i'm not and, and i thought you know everyone will do what they need to do to make the thing run so i just carried on teaching I couldn't even see the WhatsApp chat, to be honest, to find out how they, but I just trusted and I knew that because I had outstanding people within that delivery team, that they would just do a brilliant job. And they did. And it was flawless in terms of how the client received it. It was only us that knew that this was going on. And that comes from trust, it comes from um, respect, it comes from competent people and so many other things. And that's really the team that you're describing, right?
0: Yeah, it is.
1: And and I think, you know, that's the sign of a good leader because you are the one that brings these people together and you cult, you, you kind of support them and enable them to be able to, to flourish in the work that they're doing as a team. And that's the thing that brings another level of trust for you mm. as the leader.
0: Yeah. Oh, Saeeda, you just know all my buttons. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I, you know, I have a lot of conversations that get recorded and I don't know if my team ever hears most of them, but uh, if they ever hear this chat, I, I know they'll be smiling wrapped all the way around their heads, because um, trust for me has been the, the journey that transcends every other journey. Um, you know, I have, there, there's so many synchronicities to this very moment. You know, when you and I are done with this chat, I'm interviewing a woman with the hopes that I can give her the reins of our company and she can run the company. <laughs> I technically do that today, but I don't think that's the highest service for the future of our company. Um, I'm an artist. I'm an innovator, a facilitator, a scientist. I, but I'd, we need someone to really lead our company, and you know that's an extraordinary act of trust. That it's actually an example of. In the last three four months, we've hired a number of people here at Exchange, and you know it's we're growing. And yet, it's still difficult to hand the reins over. And we have a team today, Saida, I think about Steve Bouchard, who's ser- has served as our interim GM. You know, Steve is handling so many different roles for our company. He was a tra- he he attended our first training we ever ran. He was he was one of thousands who've been through our trainings, and he just he so organically developed the skills he has today, and it's trust is a two way thing. You know, it's about hopefully getting the right people in the right roles and then getting myself out of the way in the right way at the right time. Mm. And it's that in and of itself is I'm still trying to figure that out and say you know, personal mentor to me, Meg Wheatley, you may have been present. I invited you into a private, uh, almost ceremony of sorts that Meg led for a group of ours at exchange, uh, about a month or so ago. And um, during one of my private calls with her where she was just sharing wisdom with me, I was asking Meg, you know, about what she's seeing in this world right now. And anyone who's not familiar, her most recent, uh, it might not be most recent, but her most recent book that is, you can see it in the screen here. It sits at my side at the top of the stack. It's a book titled, Who Do We Choose to Be? Mm-hmm. And the book is based on two bodies of work and and overlaying them and then asking what matters most. This is my interpretation. Everybody should go read the book. And one fundamental question is, what can we understand about living systems, the science of living systems, which I believe is the most advanced, modern, real-time understanding that is available on how groups work from you and I right now to an entire civilization, and it's taking what do we know today about living systems and all the, all the principles that are at play and what happens when we overlay that with the history of the rise and fall of all civilizations. Going back thousands, it, it, it's fascinating, tens of thousands of years depending on the kinds of anthropo- anthropological research you want to do. Um, what Meg has done is she's taken all of these teachings and helped us to see that you know, history repeats itself. Every 10 generation. there's six stages or so, every 250 years or so, and it's, uh, it's shocking how accurately history repeats itself. And I've asked Meg how to make sense out of a moment in time like this one right now. And one of the things she has said to me repeatedly is the highest task of leadership today is the task of trust, trusting in others, trusting in ourselves, trusting in a deeper meaning, trusting even in the face of despair, Um, trust. Mm -hmm. I'm doing my best to figure out how to do it, Saida.
1: (laughs) well i think we all are and then the the funny thing is is that trust isn't something that's kind of like there and you have forever it's something that you constantly build and and grow and sometimes there'll be a lot of trust uh, in uh, like for example um this week um my one of my kids has been out and was out a little bit later than they should have been so i i and yeah. pushed my buttons And afterwards, we had a conversation, which the essence of which really was about trust. Mm -hmm. And so I think trust is very, very malleable. But what I've realized for me is that there are people in my life that I know that I just can't trust. I hope one day that I'll be able to. They're always going to be on the periphery. But it's really important to know that and to be aware of it, because you, you are then putting yourself in a place where you trust yourself. You know, yeah. you can't trust everyone, yeah. um, and the the other the hardest thing for me, I will share my vulnerability around trust, is trusting to delegate.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, because like one thinks, uh, you know, you, I can I can have to do everything by myself because I'm the only one that can do it. But yeah, um, one of our friends, which I met through exchange, Jesse Harless said something outstanding in the resilience workshop that he ran within Exchange. And it was just one line that I think was thrown in the mix of things, but it just, it still creates, you know, reverberations in me. And he said, you cannot do your purpose alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, like I think we both understand and I'm learning to understand because this is one of my biggest Achilles heels is that if I really want to do my purpose, particularly with the ideas around the Center for Belonging and Understanding, if I try and do that alone, I will burn out our last four days and it's not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> so, no
0: kidding. No kidding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And just finding people. And here's the other thing, like trusting and sharing your ideas yeah that's something that i've personally found a challenge as well um but then the other thing is no idea is a new idea right so Mm, you can share and if someone takes it and they put their own kind of like flavor on it and run with it that's work is still within my legacy even if they're doing it themselves so that's kind of okay you know
0: yeah yeah you know when you when you're talking about delegating and you're saying that's a struggle of yours, it, it has been for me too. And one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, trust has these different dimensions and flavors to it. You know, there's different types of trust, I guess. There's trust in someone's character or their values or their integrity, right? I'm sure there's some name for this. And, but then there's trust in their competency, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I could trust in one, but not in the other. And what, you know, one of the things I've noticed at Exchange is our team that we've built I mean, I have unconditional, infinite trust in everybody's character and integrity, um, and I'm proud that we've attracted that kind of culture. Um, However, everybody being competent at everything that we want them to be able to grow into, what I've noticed is that I have a responsibility. If I'm going to entrust that part of my job is to do uh, some of my homework to figure out, okay, am I entrusting them with something that they've done before, Okay. And if they have, that's you know one thing. If they haven't, then what am I either doing to equip them to figure it out? Or what am I doing in terms of making sure that expectations are healthy? Actually, that's arguably a big issue no matter what. And then how am I navigating my own reactions when somebody comes back with work product that maybe doesn't meet what I was hoping for? And I've learned this the hard way as, as a leader. I'll Someone will come back and I'll I'll react. And, and they can feel that I'm not happy with what they did. And then after the fact, I stop and I realize, well, I'm reacting because what they did didn't match the vision of what I wanted, but I didn't know the vision of what I wanted until I saw what I didn't want. And so that's not really fair to them. And so I've, I've learned that as a leader, if I want people to be willing to take risks and make mistakes, and Gary Hamill, one of our mentors says you have to, if you want to thrive, you have to create conditions in groups and teams where innovation can come from everywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, you look at Amy Edmondson's research on safety and it matches very closely with Gary Hamill, who's one of the leading futurists on how we organize. And and you see in all the research on groups that really thrive through change and challenge, and and there's a fundamental quality, which is people feel entrusted to experiment in fact, you look at the research from long-lived companies, you look at Ari Deguys' work in The Living Company, it's the only published study I know of, where they look at organizations and institutions that have lived for a 2, 3, years. There's not that many of them, but there are a number of them. And one of the commonalities is, while many of those organizations become a different business in a different industry from where they started, one of the qualities is they somehow enable a culture where experimentation and risk-taking is Okay. And it's not done thoughtlessly or casually, but it's okay. And I think it's one of the things that I've learned. Interesting thing is we teach it. We do it. We teach facilitators. How do you facilitate groups so that learning is happening in these exponential ways? And yet, even when I lead, I've realized that one of the conditions that Amy Edmondson has written about since 1999 that creates safety, we've already mentioned equality of voices coming in as one, but another one is do do we help people to feel safe taking risks? And that has a lot to do with this trust conversation because it's a cycle that goes back and forth. Mm. I might trust you, but if the way I reacted last time, right, conditioned you to not want to make a mistake, you're not going to make your best effort. You're not going to experiment. You're not going to try and do something creative, which is what we might need. So one of the things I've learned is when 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 people make their best effort and they make mistakes, that first reaction that they see, hear, and feel from me is everything. Mm. That's like that parent and how they treat that child and, that, and it will ch- condition that child for the rest of their life and no one will, under, will even remember the moment. Mm. So, and as a facilitator, when people speak up, when they, like you have, when they say something where everyone is thinking, oh shit, this was not part of the plan. How I react in that moment, this is what I love about Zoom. If I want to gain everybody's trust and respect of me as the facilitator, I happen to know that my face is enormous on the screen. <laughs> and I, And this is bad news, good news, right? I happen to know that if I'm well-trained, the way that we try and train others, that in that very moment, they're actually going to make a lifetime of important judgments about me that they should make about me. Because in that moment... Or in that moment where a leader is reacting to somebody else's work product, that's where they get to see the true me, not Mm -hmm. the me that shows up when everything's going well. And then, you know, everything ensues from there. So I don't even know why I just shared all that Seda, but oh, trust. I've learned the hard way that I've gotta have healthy expectations. I've gotta equip people. And if they're not equipped, and if I haven't given them the expectations, even if they have, when they come back and we make mistakes, we have to embrace those mistakes through how we react in the moment that they are revealed. Otherwise, people hide them or they run from the very innovative, creative behaviors that we want that are going to lead to them. Mm-hmm. And the, the key thing goes back to what my dad taught me is, can I react from a place of appreciation that they gave an effort? And then can I get curious and embody it so everyone gets curious and we say, well, what can we learn? And what is it that we want next time? all right, what do we do differently? And that right there is the active learning cycle in in the real world.
1: Mm, I love that. I mean, your, your description of how you uh, support your team and support others is is pretty much what, what I try and do. And I think um, it, it may take a little bit longer, but you know what, that, that piece that you get about trust and in the long term, it's worth absolutely everything. And and your articulation of what can I learn? I mean, when you live your life by that question, I think opportunities, gifts, all of these other kind of like amazing things come in because the learning, as much as you think it's for you, it's actually for everybody else as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, one, one of the other things I've learned is that if we have a culture where we facilitate the kinds of internal conversations, where we are regularly reconnecting to our higher purpose, which we do, because that's what we teach others how to do, so we try, and, we try and take our own medicine. When we have that kind of culture where we treat each other with dignity and respect and, and we are so motivated to serve you, Seda, our members, what I have come to realize, and this has been a, a maturation for me, I didn't get this for a while, is that as strongly as I could react to my team making a mistake, I've finally realized that for many of them, their internal reactions are stronger than even what I'm piling on top. Mm. And so oftentimes what they need is not somebody else pointing out to them how costly their mistake was. What they really need is somebody else saying, you're okay. This Mm. This is okay. This is part of the journey. Yeah, we'll learn from it. Did it cost us? Sure. If you want to acknowledge that, yeah, it did. But it doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't (laughs) mean, like, this is expected. I've learned that I almost have to have a 180-degree opposite reaction at certain times when someone on our team makes a mistake. And I've also realized, I mean, this is the most basic. I know you have a background in applied positive psychology, and it's so funny how some of the most practical teachings uh, we forget And I've taught this stuff at the Weatherhead School of Management. And I forget that I need to build a bank account over time of genuine acknowledgement and appreciation so that when it is necessary for me to point out, hey, you did screw that up. Because if we don't have a culture where we can point that out, that's another problem, right? Mm. Safety doesn't mean we don't have standards. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have a lot of safety, but you don't have high performance standards, you have people holding hands, singing Kumbaya, getting nothing done. Mm -hmm. If you have high performance standards, but no safety, everybody's running around fueled by anxiety. Mm -hmm. When you have both, you have the kinds of things that are happening for us at Exchange right now where we push our own limits. We push our own innovation further than anyone else can push us. We make mistakes, but we thrive. And hopefully um, the way we treat each other, we feel respected through the process. So those are more learnings on this whole journey of trusting and navigating what happens when things don't go well.
1: Absolutely. And and just to add to everything that you've said, which I think is brilliant, is that when you do create that trusting environment, actually people will point things out to you. So, for example, yesterday. I was in a a training within Exchange, and I just said, I sent the facilitator a a private message in the chat and said, I have a couple of deltas for you. Do you have two minutes? I just don't have the capacity at the moment to have a separate meeting. So um, they stayed, and these two things that I shared, they were like, man, that's so good. And this is the piece. You want to have friends that you can trust. Also, you want to be in an environment where the person that's you know i felt that i that i would be listened to that's why i felt that Mm. i could share these things and the the piece of growth for that person i think is is enormous because if he does those things then their personal currency will be elevated and they're tiny things that i can see because i'm a fellow facilitator you know that somebody else might miss so
0: yeah that's awesome
1: Awesome. I have a couple of more questions for you, and then we will wrap up. Um, the first Great. one is, what are you reading, listening, and watching right now?
0: Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, at the moment, I am uh, listening to, reading, and talking with uh, a, a dear personal friend and maybe one of the most significant mentors for me in exchange. He, he helped name exchange, um, and someone who you've met through our uh, guest mentor sessions at Exchange, and I know his teaching has actually had a pretty big influence on some of the work that you're doing right now, which is great to hear, um, is the work of Christopher Lockhead. And um, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, Christopher is a, uh, I, he used to use the word retired, and then enough of us told him that it was a little silly that he was saying that, but he's a, a former three-time chief marketing officer for multiple publicly traded companies in the Silicon Valley in the last place he worked at. Uh, that company was sold to Hewlett Packard for many, many billions of dollars with a B. And uh, Christopher is the in his, you know, kind of second career after he finished as kind of a marketing legend in the Silicon Valley. He uh, he started a number of podcasts, one of them by the name of Follow Your Different, which is where he he interviews and has conversations, dialogues. It's not an interview. I should correct myself. He has these dialogues with the most amazing people all around the world, uh, from uh, Olympic gold medalists to four-star generals to you know the founder of Zoom to you know the leading venture capitalists. Who you know, and he asks them serious questions about what's going on in this world. And you know, one of the themes across his work is about how leveraging what makes us different is so much more important than trying to be better than anybody else. Um, And he also has a podcast on marketing. And one of the things, Ada, you asked, what am I reading, listening to? I I spent a few hours talking with Christopher the other day is I'm trying to understand from him because he has a good amount of time on his hand to read and listen to and talk with really smart people about what's going on in our world right now. And one of the things that I'm really captivated by is that there's there's a whole reinvention. Uh, it's li- literally a new category of human being that has been developed right underneath our feet, and it's not obvious, I think, to many of us. Even myself, as I'm studying what Christopher is writing and sharing through his work, I'm still trying to understand what he's sharing. And if I can be specific, you know, there's one particular uh, concept that he's been talking about, which is the difference between. Somebody who grew up, and, and let's just say someone who's 35 years or older, just to put an age out there, who, for them, their native world is the analog physical world, right? Whereas, and you can see where we're going with this, somebody who's, let's just say, younger than that, their their native world is the digital world. I've shared this idea with a couple of folks who I respect in the last few weeks, and they look at me like makes no sense. No clue how that makes any sense. Don't get it. And I say, well, do you realize we're having this chat through Zoom? <laughs> and I stop and I say, so like, this is real, right? This is very human, right? Uh, but Christopher tells the story of how he's watching the sunset. He lives in Santa Cruz and uh, he's watching the sunset with some friends and they've got some teenagers with them. And, you know, to them, what was real was the sunset, but to those teenagers, as they're, you know, Snapchatting and WhatsApping the photos, what's real to them is the digital archiving of the sunset. And, you know, Seda, you're a part of what we do at Exchange, so you've witnessed what we've been doing for the last year and what we've done over the last year. I mean, last week, we ran one of our three-day trainings And Dr. Henry Kahn, who, by the way, was a mentor to Dr. Danny Friedland, was in attendance at this training. And on the third day, Dr. Henry uh, brings his voice forward. And he said, I have to say that this last three-day training, and again, this is on Zoom, this last three-day training, and this was guided by all the facilitation tools that we've alluded to during this chat. He said, this was the most extraordinary experience of unconditional love That I have seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And when he says that, there's this part of me that is just praying that every single leader, every single manager, every single business owner, every entrepreneur in the world could understand that we can't really predict, we can't really control things like a pandemic. And anybody who has any ounce of resistance to the idea that we can come together, that we can connect, that we can feel safe, we can create belonging, we can create community, we can create global communities, we can create transformation, we can lead design sprints, strategic planning, we can start businesses, build communities, transform entire maybe civilizations, if anybody doesn't believe that's possible online, I I pray for those people, Seda, because I am of the opinion that for any of us who don't realize not only that we can, but maybe we must Mm. learn how to do what you and I are doing right now and with groups, that many of those people unfortunately become obsolete. Mm. Not because we aren't going to still want to cherish the moments in person, right? I want to put my feet in the sand. I I, I want to share a meal with you one day. Mm. But I also want to see things as they are and as they likely will be and realize that we've got to figure out how to operate in this future that none of us know what it's going to look like. And the ability to facilitate digitally and in person is one of those necessary skills. And what Christopher is out there teaching about understanding, and and get this, here's the crazy thing. This is going to shock someone who hears this. The leaders of the largest tech companies in the world, there's a good chance that some of them haven't fully embraced what I'm talking about. Mm. For example, we all saw it in the news over the last year, the head of Apple, the head of LinkedIn, right? These, these are the giants. Mm. They came out and said, as soon as it's safe, everyone needs to come back to the offices. They did. This was all public. And then when they saw that, A, people weren't coming back, (laughs) oh my gosh, I'm going to lose all my most valuable people. Um, And B, that you can actually get the work done and everything that matters without coming back. There was this shocking moment over the last six months where it's like, wait a minute, even the heads of these tech giants who've pioneered so much of this very technological revolution we're sitting here in benefiting from even they have not yet fully embraced that the future of work is still, still unfolding in front of our eyes. So that's something that's got me curious.
1: I love that. And, and one of the ways that I'm leaning into that, cause I stand right next to you on everything that you've said there. One of the things I'm doing is I'm now putting myself into online groups that where I know the majority of the people are under the age of 30 or 25 and mm. honestly, like my buttons get pushed. But yeah. can you imagine how much I'm learning just from the way that they interact with each other? And that for me is really rich because in terms of the work that I want to do on the Center of Belonging and Understanding, for me, that begins online. Yeah, it's Even yeah. think about it, like our phones are like another limb for us a lot of the communication that we do is virtually if we're able to to belong and understand with people like I can with you through this yeah. medium then when we do actually meet it's just going to be another level so yeah. that's you know it's um essential work to do yeah um i'd love to ask you what advice do you have for me <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, my goodness. Well, in respects to anything specifically?
1: Anything that comes to your mind.
0: (laughs) Mm. Well, I know just enough about your journey and where you've come from. I know that, you know, in the first part of your career, when you were an aspiring uh, and you studied and entered into the field of uh, being an architect. I, I know that you know, you've know faced tr- tremendous adversity, your car accident, um, and, and you made it through all that to get to that place you wanted to get to. And then even then when it made sense to nobody else, you said, I'm gonna follow my heart to, to s- somewhere different. And I know you're at another moment right now where once again, You're following your heart in what you're choosing to research and study with your thesis and your Ph.D. And so I'm really not one to like this idea of giving advice. But to respect this question, I would just say I admire so much that you have been followed that you have followed your heart. And I would just ask you to keep doing that. You know, your heart, the heart has an intelligence. One of my dear friends and I call him a soul brother, Dr. Roland McCready and his team, Debbie Rosman and Howard Martin and and their team over at the HeartMath Institute. They've been researching for like decades and decades the the science of the heart. I mean, hundreds of peer-reviewed studies to validate that there is this place inside of us, this whole intelligence that doesn't just live in our heads, that it lives in our whole being, And what I've learned from them, you have been such an embodiment of Sayida. You have followed your heart. You have made decisions when they made no sense. And um, I just am honored to have a front row seat. And I can't wait to watch as you continue to do that, because I think the work you're doing in the world is so deeply needed, maybe way beyond how I can even comprehend. And maybe you're way ahead of your time. um, But that just means you're needed even more. So... That's the best I can do.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you so much, John. That was excellent and, um, and really, really good advice because there are times when I don't want to follow my heart. <laughs> so Mm, i will i will go back and i have to throw this in because i didn't do it earlier but i'm hoping that you will connect me to christopher lockhead so that we can have him on this podcast because you're right his stuff has been very influential in terms of me unpicking how to design the category for belonging and understanding and the languaging around all of that stuff and i i literally i look at his work every day it's in front of me because it just gives me the ability to unpack stuff and to test it. And I think the guy's just, um, uh, he doesn't even know who I am, but he's already a mentor of mine, if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it.
1: I want to just, you know, honestly, John, like there are no words to express my admiration for you and my care and affection for you. You are just such a, a huge gift in my life. Every conversation that we have, every interaction whether it's you know over a facebook message or a second or two i just feel as if i grow and to mm. have people like that in my life is a huge blessing and uh every day i just kind of like thank god for you in my life because i don't know else who could feel who else could could fill that gap so just keep on doing the amazing stuff that you're doing and uh and I look forward to multiple, multiple conversations with you.
0: Oh, but, thank you. Thank you. That but, means the world to me, Saida. Thank you. Oh,
1: thank you. For anyone who's listening in, if they want to um, kind of contact you or find out about exchange, what's the best way?
0: Yeah, well, um, every every other month or so, we run one of our flagship trainings, which you're familiar with. And one of them is our online exchange experience. It's a You know, the word training is an interesting word. It's not usually how our participants describe it. It's almost a ceremony or a a celebration of how to unlock learning and community through one particular method at the same time. But it is a training on a facilitation method that honors and borrows from so many different disciplines to figure out how to design questions and conversations to bring out the best in group environments. We've got trainings every several months on that, or maybe every three to four months. And then we have another flagship training on awakening conscious leadership. And it's about the intersection of the neuroscience and the research that Dr. Daniel Friedland has done and the skills of mindfulness. And in particular, uh, the unified mindfulness practice that is led today by Juliana Ray, was founded by Shin Zen Young and how to embody the kinds of tools that allow us in our moments of stress and self-doubt and ultimately reactivity to be able to, in a practical way, turn that downward spiral into an upward cycle of creativity um, and to be able to lead well, but from within, which is also the title of Danny Friedland's book by which that training is based on. And if someone's not sure if they want to come through a full three-day training, Seda, we also, on an irregular basis, but someone could go to our website to find these, xchangeapproach.com, the letter X, the word changeapproach.com. We run public workshops and these are live. They're always live for now. I don't know if we'll ever have them recorded, but they're live experiential introductions to both our facilitation methods and also our conscious leadership training. And um, I lead a lot of these. Some of our teachers lead these and these are are free. So if you come to our website, exchangeapproach.com, usually you can find a way to register for one of our upcoming workshops and we've met and we met you at one of those that we did inside of somebody else's event. We've met almost nine, 10,000 people around the world in the last year from those workshops. So thanks for letting me share that.
1: No, thank you, John. And what a gift that was because, uh, you know, you've, you've really been instrumental in some of the things that I'm doing now. And I encourage everyone to go to exchangeapproach.com. We'll put the link in the show notes and, to certainly go to a public workshop just to get a little bit of a taste and a flavor of what exchange does and if you get an opportunity to go to an OXE or one of the other events perhaps i'll even see you in there john thank you so much it's uh, it's always a gift to speak to you and um i i look forward to our next conversation
0: likewise say thank you so much
1: If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada, I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.